Our topic for this afternoon is the rise of the Antichrist. And I think this is one of the most thrilling, one of the most interesting topics, one of the most interesting prophecies that you can do in the whole of the Bible. In fact, this prophecy that we started studying last week, it will take us all the way from Daniel's day over the next three weeks all the way to the second coming of Jesus and beyond. And so again, I want to thank you for being here this afternoon. And I know that as you study with me what the Bible has to say about the Antichrist, that you will leave this place assured that once again the God of Daniel, who gave Daniel this dream, who gave Daniel this vision, this prophecy, that this God is in control of our world, he is in control of where we are headed, and he does know the future, he does know the present, and he does know the past. The rise of the Antichrist. I think when you study this subject, perhaps the very first question you ask is who is the Antichrist? Who is the Antichrist? We hear a lot of noise out there in the world, out there with different religions, out there with individuals on who the Antichrist is. And I, as I was putting this program together, went on a little investigation to see what people, who they thought the Antichrist was. And I came up with some very interesting conclusions. Some people believe the Antichrist is some alien being from outer space or from somewhere who comes down to the world and through supernatural powers that we do not have, enslaves the world to follow him or her or it or whatever it may be, to enslave them in in slavery to follow him or her or whatever it is. And you can see a picture of, of such a concept there, some sort of demonic interpretation of who the Antichrist is. Others believe the Antichrist is in fact a human being. And you'll notice the numbers 666 in this picture that you're looking at on the screen associated with this human being. This human being is somebody who's given supernatural powers from the dark side. And somehow with these supernatural powers, this human being rises above all other leaders and governments on the face of the earth and he enslaves them. And this, this being, this human being, is somehow against God, is anti-Christ. And I think that perhaps is one of the most, or one of the more common interpretations today of who the, the Antichrist is. I wonder how many of you know who this fellow is on the screen. His name is Marilyn Manson. He's a singer. He's a rock singer. Now I can tell you whether I'm following Jesus or not and praise God this this afternoon I follow Jesus. This is a guy whose music I'm not interested in and I find him a complete turn off. But he claims to be the Antichrist. Yes he does. And there are thousands and thousands of young people who will flock into stadiums to listen to this man sing and one of the attractions of him is his claim to darkness. I don't think Marilyn Manson's the Antichrist, but some do. You know, believe it or not, many people think that George Bush 
is the Antichrist. And I was surprised as I put this program together, as I did a scan on my internet search engine Google at home, how many sites there are that seriously, they're not joking, they're not poking fun at the president, who seriously consider George Bush and the American government to be the Antichrist. Well, again, I find that just a a little far-fetched, but reality is there are people out there who believe that George Bush is the Antichrist and they dedicate websites and weeks and perhaps even years of research coming to trying to prove to people that George Bush is indeed the Antichrist. Some believe that the Antichrist is the Pope. And I guess as I was studying this, I, I came across a, an author, a very well-known author in Protestantism called David Hunt. Perhaps some of you have heard of him. And David Hunt claims that the Pope and more widely the Catholic Church is the Antichrist. And he has written many best-selling books dedicated to that theme. Still others believe that the Antichrist is the United Nations. And again, you can do a search on your search engine, on your internet search engine at home, and you'll find people claiming that the United Nations, that the Secretary General of the United Nations, the United Nations is the Antichrist and will lead at the end of time, this is what they claim, a great movement against Christ, finding its roots, its foundations in the United Nations. Some of you may have heard of this book, Left Behind, by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins. I want to tell you that this series of books, and I believe two movie-length films, has had more impact on who people believe the Antichrist is in our world today than perhaps any other influence. And in these books, they claim that a businessman, backed by the United Nations, backed by a, a, an alliance of dark forces, that this businessman actually rises up above all other rulers in the world, similar to another interpretation we've already looked at, and that this businessman leads the world in an alliance against Christ. Interesting, as you read these books, as you watch these movies, that Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins see the United States of America as being pro-Christ, not anti-Christ. And they see a significant role for the United States of America and Israel. They see a significant role that these two nations will play in opposing the anti-Christ. It leaves us with the question, doesn't it, this afternoon, as we do this Bible study, who is the anti-Christ? So I thought that I would go to the Bible And I would have a look at what the Bible has to say about the Antichrist. Do you know that you can go through the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation and you will only have four texts. I can only find four texts that mention the Antichrist. And so as we get into this discussion this afternoon, I thought I would share these texts with you. And if you have your Bibles, look at them. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. John the Apostle says, Dear children... This is the last hour. John the Apostle believed 
as we do, that he was in the last days of earth's history. And he says, dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. John says that when the Antichrist comes, he says when you see the rise of the Antichrist, he said you better know that it is the last hour, that the world is coming to an end and Jesus is almost here. Second text, same author, says who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father, he denies the Son. So John secondly says that anybody who comes and denies that Jesus is the Christ, denies that Jesus is the Saviour, denies that Jesus is God, the King of all heaven, John says that person, such a man, is a anti-Christ. They're not for Christ, they're anti-Christ. Third text, 1 John 4, 3, same author. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God, This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. John says that if somebody says Jesus is not from heaven, if somebody says that Jesus is not from God, John says then they are Antichrist. Kind of getting a feel of what the Bible says has to say about who this Antichrist is and what spirit the Antichrist has. Last text and then we'll get into it. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So if you deny that Jesus came from heaven in the flesh, to walk on this earth, the Bible says you are a what? Anti-Christ. Interesting, four texts. As far as I could find, the only four texts in the Bible that have to do with the Antichrist. So it still leaves us with the question, who is the Antichrist? Now this afternoon, I just want to challenge you as we get into this study that there is no other place we can go to to find out who the Antichrist is than the Bible. And this afternoon we're going to go into the Bible in just a moment and we're going to look at who is the Antichrist. It is a continuation from last week's study. And let me say right at the beginning as we go into this subject, it is sobering, it is confronting. I think God meant it to be so. But it is the truth. I am going to try my best not to sensationalise this topic. I think we let God down when we sensationalise it and we go further than what the Bible has to say about it. And I know that I can stand up the front here and I can sensationalise this topic and perhaps thousands will turn up to hear what I've got to say. But I believe that lets the Lord down. It lets the truth of the Word down And it's not what I want to do. And so we're going to have a sober look this afternoon at who the Bible says the Antichrist is. And it is a continuation of last week's study. 
And so I just want to remind you for a moment of what we looked at last week. Daniel had a vision and he saw four beasts, a lion with wings, a bear with three ribs in his mouth, a leopard with four wings and four heads. And finally he saw an indescribable savage beast with ten horns. You remember last week that we recognised, we saw from the word that these four beasts represented four nations from Daniel's time down through the annals of history. You remember those nations were Babylon with King Nebuchadnezzar who went from 605 to 538 BC. He was represented by the lion with wings. And then we went to to Medo-Persia, the bear with the three ribs in its mouth. 538 to 332 BC. Medo-Persia was then taken out by the Kingdom of Greece and the great King Alexander the Great. 332 to 168 BC, represented by the leopard with four heads and four wings. And finally the indescribable beast with ten horns. You'll remember who that was. Pagan Rome. The greatest of all those kingdoms that went from 168 years before Christ to 538 years after. Now, I want to look at that last text that we ended on last week and that's where I want to start this week. I'm going to try and keep this Bible study as simple as possible. The Bible says in Daniel chapter 7 verse 7, remember Daniel's in vision. It is God who's giving Daniel this vision. He's already seen the kingdoms as they've come and gone down through the annals of history. And then he's confronted with this final beast. He says, after that, this is Daniel writing, recounting his vision. He says, after that in my vision at night I looked and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. This is pagan Rome. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the other former beasts and it had ten horns. It was different and it had ten horns. And you remember that as we looked at Rome last week, we found out that those ten horns, Daniel 7 verse 24, are ten kingdoms who will come from the kingdom of Rome. And we looked at these ten kingdoms which were the beginning of modern Europe. The Suvi from Portugal, the Visigoths from Spain, the Franks from France, the Anglo-Saxons from England. We saw the beginnings of modern day Europe. God told Daniel exactly what would happen and exactly as God showed Daniel, it has happened. Babylon did come and go, followed by Medo-Persia which did come and go, followed by Greece and Rome, all of which came and went and he said God told Daniel that Rome as it fell would break up into ten different sections right across Europe, ten different tribes and that's exactly what happened. But the dream doesn't stop there because this is where it starts to get very interesting and I want to tell you this afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, my friends, we are looking right now in this prophecy at the rise of the Antichrist in the Bible. So look at this carefully. Daniel says, while I was thinking about the horns, he said, while I was thinking about the ten tribes that came and destroyed pagan Rome, he said, while I was thinking about those ten tribes, there before me was another horn, another power, He said ten tribes would destroy pagan Rome. 
They would split Europe up between themselves. But he said, as these ten tribes destroy pagan Rome, another power, a little power, begins to rise. He says, it came up from among those ten tribes. Now look at this. And three of the first tribes were uprooted before this little power. He says, this horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Now I've got to be careful when I say this, but listen to me. This little horn, and I'm going to prove it in a moment, of Daniel 7 is the Antichrist of the Bible. Now I must be very humble and very careful when I say this, and I say it with love and I say it with care and concern for all of you because this impacts all of us. The little horn, the Antichrist of the Bible, is the Roman Catholic Church. Now, before I go any further, I just want to tell you something that I've already told my church. I come from a Roman Catholic heritage. My great-grandfather was a Roman Catholic. I come from Switzerland, Grolemond, very strange name. In fact, when people ask me my name when I'm buying a car or in a shop doing something, I don't even bother saying Grolemond. I just spell it for them, G-R-O-L-I-M-U-N-D. We come from a Catholic area in Switzerland, just south of Basel, near the German border. My family are Roman Catholic to this day. They are Roman Catholic of Roman Catholic. For over 500 years, two Grolemann boys, it's a tradition, have served in the Swiss army. It's a tradition in the Swiss guard who guard the Pope. So when I talk about this system this afternoon, I'm talking about my own heritage It was only when my great-grandfather back in the 1880s, 1890s came to Australia as a Roman Catholic that a man came and knocked on his door one day. He was selling books and my great-grandfather grabbed a hold of one of these books and he began to read the Bible. You know, he never let that bookseller leave his house for over a week. When he left the house, my grandfather had then studied these prophecies. He had been convicted... And I praise God he became a Seventh-day Adventist. But to this day, I remember my own family background. And I want to tell you this afternoon, and I say this in all seriousness, I am not talking this afternoon when we study this prophecy about Roman Catholic people. If Jesus was to come today, perhaps because of their numbers, there would be more Roman Catholic people going to the kingdom than there are Seventh-day Adventists, perhaps even Protestants. Because you go to the kingdom, you go to kingdom to live with Jesus for eternity because of the grace of Christ and nothing else. And so there are Roman Catholics serving Jesus today that will be in the kingdom and perhaps many millions of them. I'm talking this afternoon about a system, not a people, but it's a system that the Bible exposes. It's a system that God himself, the great King of heaven, the Ancient of Days, it's a system that he decided to expose to his people and this system has an important role to play as we go into the end of time. In fact, an increasingly important role. 
And I believe as you study this prophecy with me, that you too will leave convinced that there is no other option than to identify the Antichrist, this little horn, as none other than the Church of Rome. Well, let me show you why I believe such a thing. Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. Let's look at how the Bible identifies the little horn for a moment this afternoon. Let's look at how the Bible identifies the Roman Catholic Church, the Church of Rome, as being the Antichrist. Daniel 7, verse 8. Daniel says, While I was thinking about the horns, he says, While I was thinking about those ten tribes, there before me was another horn. He says, a little horn, a little power, one which came up from among the ten tribes. Now, let me tell you that Rome, pagan Rome, came under increasing pressure, this is historical fact, from these ten tribes from about 200 AD right through until 538 AD. In 538 AD, these tribes were established. While these tribes were establishing themselves as the foundation of modern day Europe, history tells us that the Roman Catholic Church, the Church of Rome, was beginning to rise in prominence and in power. I want to tell you that the Church of Rome is not the Church of the Apostles. In fact, if you study your history and you stay with this series, you will find that the Church of Rome is indeed an offshoot from the Church of the Apostles. But by 538 AD, the Church of Rome had established herself in Europe as the state church. I want to tell you this afternoon that that is historical fact. So did the Church of Rome rise from among the ten tribes? History attests to the fact of it. You can't escape it. In fact, I would challenge you to go and look at the history books. Go to the library. You will find no other power rising into prominence at that time other than the Church of Rome. There is no other power. Only the Church of Rome arose from the ten tribes at that time. Now listen to this. Daniel says, While I was thinking about the tribes, there before me was another power, a little one, which came up from among the tribes. Now look at this. And three of the first tribes were uprooted before this power. Interesting story is the story of Jesus as the gospel spread across Europe. It was like an uncontrolled bushfire. And wherever the story of Jesus went, people heard it and welcomed it into their hearts. But there were three tribes who a missionary by the name of Arian went to. Have you ever heard of Arian? Arian believed that Jesus was sent by God, but that Jesus was not God, he was a good man. Now, I want to tell you, that's not what Seventh-day Adventists believe. And it's not what Christians believe. We believe that Jesus was sent from God, but we believe that Jesus was God. 
Arian did not and he spread this message to three tribes, the Heruli, the Ostrogoths and the Vandals. It was a message that the church of Rome could not, would not and did not tolerate. And they threatened the Heruli and the Ostrogoths and the Vandals. And the Heruli, <coughs> excuse me, the Ostrogoths and the Vandals decided to go their way anyway. And the church of Rome, through the emperor of Europe, rose armies. And I want to tell you that they went and they decimated, they uprooted the Heruli, the Ostrogoths and the Vandals. My wife likes me to pick the, the weeds out of the garden at home. I dislike that job immensely. Oh, it's a horrible job. But you know that when I pick the weeds out, sometimes I don't get the roots. It looks good. I can't see the weed. I think it's gone. But I go back the following week and guess what? It's there because I did not uproot it. These tribes were uprooted. They, this was an ancient holocaust. Men, women and children wiped off the face of the earth. There, Look, you can go and have a look, like I have, at the ruins of, of ancient Europe. You'll find the ruins of the Vandals. You'll find their great cities, but you will find absolutely no indication. You'll see no evidence that they ever went on from these attacks. They were wiped out. Men, I'll say it again, men, women and children no longer exist. Only thing left of them, ruins. And just like the Bible said, Rome, the church of Rome did arise from these ten tribes and the church of Rome, it's historical fact. You can't go around it, you can't go over it, you can't go under it. The church of Rome did destroy these three tribes. He says, while I was thinking about the horns there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up from among them and three of the first horns were uprooted before. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man. At the head of the church of Rome is one man, not two, not a committee, not a democratically elected government body. We have at the church of Rome one man and that is the Pope. And he is all powerful. When I was in Europe a few years ago, I went to look at this castle, Canossa. This used to be the Pope's winter residence. It's, it's on a hill in a beautiful part of northern Italy. While I was there, I heard an interesting story how the Emperor of Europe, Henry IV, back in the, the, about 1080, decided that he would no longer pay homage, would no longer listen to and certainly would no longer send money to the Pope. I'll tell you how powerful the Pope is, how, popal, how powerful the Pope was and how powerful he still is. The Pope then told the people of Germany and of Europe who Henry, Emperor Henry IV ruled over, he said, you no longer have to listen to the Emperor, you no longer have to pay taxes to the Emperor, you no longer have to fight for the Emperor. In fact, he said, I excommunicate the Emperor from the church. It didn't take long. Henry IV came to the walls in the middle of winter at the bottom of this castle. The Pope was in winter residence and there in the snow in bare feet for three days he knelt before the Pope gave him an audience and he begged for forgiveness. There are over 1.4 billion Roman Catholics today living in the world and the Pope, to a good Roman Catholic, 
outside of God himself is the overriding authority. And perhaps there is no man on earth today that wields more power than Pope Benedict, even more than the President of the United States. The Bible says that the eyes of a man, one man, would rule over this power and exactly as the Bible says it does. He says, this horn, verse 8, had eyes like the eyes of men and Daniel says, and had a mouth that spoke boastfully. I wish we had more time for this. People say, what do you mean, what does the Bible mean when it says that the Church of Rome has a, has a mouth that speaks boastfully? Some versions say, a mouth that speaks blasphemy against God. I'll tell you, it's a simple thing. You go to Daniel chapter 5, you find a story about King Belshazzar. And we talked about this last week. The foolish king, king of Babylon, he was under attack by the Medo-Persians by Cyrus. The armies of the Medo-Persians had surrounded the beautiful city of Babylon. He was in deep danger and he threw a party. Go and read the story, Daniel chapter 5. And Belshazzar in his foolishness brought the, the vessels from the temple of God that his grandfather had captured in Jerusalem. And he brought these vessels into the party. And he filled them with alcohol and he raised the vessels up into the air and he said, Hail Beldagon, the God of the Babylonians. He is more powerful than any God on all the earth. And as he was boasting to the people in that party, God's hand, just, a, just the hand in blood wrote on the wall, Meany, Meany, Tekel, you fast. And you remember the story last week? Go and read it in Daniel chapter 5. In panic with his knees knocking together, Belshazzar tries to work out what meany, meany, tekel you fasten means. Finally, his grandmother, who was the wife of Nebuchadnezzar, the friend of Daniel, says, call in Daniel, he'll tell you what it means. And Daniel comes in and he says, Belshazzar, you've been weighed by God tonight. You've been found wanting and you are going to die. And you'll remember last week we saw how the Medo-Persian soldiers came through the open gates underneath the city walls and that night indeed Belshazzar died. But how did he blaspheme God that night? He took the vessels of God that were dedicated to true worship so he took the true and he used them to worship the false. Belshazzar in fact mixed true worship with false worship. I hope you get me here this afternoon. And he spoke boastfully, or as the Bible says in the New King James, he blasphemed against God. A very serious charge. And the Bible says that this power, the Church of Rome, does exactly the same thing. It takes the true and uses it to manifest and uplift and to honour the false. It blasphemes God. If I had more time, I'd spend more time with you on this point, but I don't. But I want to give you three quick examples. Blasphemy is to mix the things of God with the things of Satan. First John chapter one nine, chapter one. Sorry, first John chapter one verse nine. God says, Confess your sins to me, and I am just. I will forgive you. If you've done something wrong, the Bible clearly says confess your sins to God and he will forgive you. There's something cleansing about that sort of experience. But you know, I have been to Europe in the great cathedrals of the world 
And in all these cathedrals you will see confessionals. Now let me tell you that confession is a good thing. Each of us needs to confess. God says it time after time in the Bible, confess your sins, confess your sins. But every time God says confess your sins, he says confess your sins to me. But the Catholic Church, the Church of Rome, takes this good concept of truth. Confess your sins and it takes it from here where it's the truth over to here where it honours darkness because they're telling their people, don't confess your sins to Jesus. Come into a confessional and confess your sins to a priest. And if the priest says you are forgiven, then God himself is compelled to forgive you. That, ladies and gentlemen, is blasphemy of the highest order. When you confess your sins, you confess them to Jesus and Jesus alone. Second of three short examples, blasphemy is to mix the things of God with the things of Satan. We all know Mother Teresa. I personally think she was a very good woman. And when people criticise Mother Teresa for being a Roman Catholic, I say to them, well, you go to the streets of India and you participate for a lifetime in her ministry and then you have a right to stand up and to criticise her. What Mother Teresa did was a good thing. She helped the suffering of hundreds of thousands of poor Indians. She was a good woman. But the Church of Rome has taken that good thing and they have brought it over here and they have made it a thing of darkness, of evil. Because at the very moment as I speak, Mother Teresa is being beatified. She's being made into a saint. And when she is pronounced by the Pope as a saint, you can then get down on your knees and pray not to Jesus Christ as the Bible commands us to do, but you can pray directly to Mother Teresa. And that, as good a life as that little lady led, is blasphemy of the highest order. Because Mother Teresa is a dead, she's asleep in the grave, she doesn't know anything. And yet here, the Church of Rome, through this, through the life of this good little lady, is committing blasphemy. And lastly, the Church of Rome takes worship, which is a good thing. Right through the Bible you'll see God saying, worship me. Do not worship, worship me and worship me alone. In fact, the Bible says, Exodus 20, verse 8 to 11, remember the Sabbath day and worship God. Remember creation and worship God. But the Church of Rome has taken worship, which is a good thing, over to here and made it a dark thing because they have transferred worship from the Sabbath to Sunday. You might say, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is God asks us to come and meet him on the Sabbath, not Sunday. It is blasphemy to change God's law. It is blasphemy to contradict his word. And I just thought I'd throw these in uh, for, for interest's sake and I, I, I will go, we'll go to that in a minute. Daniel 7.25 
Bible says, and we're moving into a new section, he will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints. You know, I've been to Europe. I was blessed to go to Europe. And I have seen, and I mentioned this many times to my church, and this is a serious thing, where the Church of Rome, since 538 AD, has slaughtered more than 50 million. I'll say it again. The Church of Rome has slaughtered more than 50 million of God's saints because they would not acknowledge Rome as a source of truth. They had these saints maintained in their lives and and in their actions, the Bible as the truth and as the word of truth for their lives. And the Church of Rome took such exception to this that over 50 million people died. I've been up into the Waldensee Valleys. You see a picture of the Waldensee Valleys. Beautiful place where the Waldensee people made their stand for God and hundreds and thousands of them died. I've been into the cells in the Piedmont Plains of Italy and I've seen where the people of God in the hundreds and the thousands died rather than give up their belief in the Word of God. And you can look at any history book, whether it be secular or whether it be religious, and you will see where thousands and thousands of God's people have been slaughtered by the Church of Rome. In the Inquisition in Spain, thousands died on St. Bartholomew's Day in France. Hundreds of thousands died up in the Waldensee Valleys. They died by burnings. They died by drownings. They died, they were pulled apart by horses on racks, the most terrible tortures by the Church of Rome. And so serious and so real is this that you'd notice that the last Pope a few years ago, Pope John II, actually apologised for the tortures of the Church of Rome to the people of not the Middle Ages but the Dark Ages. The Bible says he will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and here's the next point and try to change the set times and the laws. Look at this very quickly. Question, which is the Sabbath day? This comes from the Converts Catechism of Catholic Doctrine. The Bible says that the Church of Rome or the Antichrist, see Antichrist, or the, the Little Horn would attempt to change times and laws. Now, if you go to the Ten Commandments, which is God's law, you will find only one law that has to do with time. The Sabbath day. Now, look at this from the Church of Rome, from the Catholic Church, from Peter Gearman, one of their own theologians. Question, this is a book that he wrote, which is the Sabbath day? Answer, Saturday is the Sabbath day. You can go in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. I'll tell you that Saturday is the Sabbath. There is no escape from that. Again, you can't go over that. You can't go under it. You can't go through it. It's there. And to tell you the truth, I am baffled how all of Christianity, just about all of Christianity worships on Sunday. It makes no sense that they worship on Sunday because there's no evidence of it in the Bible anywhere. Question, which is the Sabbath day? Asked this Catholic theologian. Answer, Saturday is the Sabbath day. He goes on, why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Look at his answer. 
This is not a Seventh-day Adventist book. This is not a Protestant book. This is from the Church of Rome, from one of their top theologians. He says, we observe Sunday instead of Saturday because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. They admit it, they acknowledge it. We transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. We did it and we have a right. The Protestants desperately scrabble around for text, desperately reach for the unknown that is not there, but praise God, the Church of Rome, in its boldness and its defiance against God, says, we observe Sunday instead of Saturday because we transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. You can go into any church here in Sydney, ask any priest, why do you worship Saturday, uh, Sunday rather than Saturday? And he'll give you the same answer, because we chose, we had a right to change the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. Look at this, this is another Roman Catholic Church of Rome document, the Catholic Bulletin. The church changed. They admit it. They acknowledge it. They're honest, open and truthful about it, which is more than us Protestants are about the same subject. The church changed the observance of the Sabbath to Sunday by right of defined infallible authority given to her by her founder, Jesus Christ. The Protestant, that's us, claiming the Bible to be the only guide of faith has no warrant for observing Sunday. In this matter, the Seventh-day Adventist is the only consistent Protestant. Very sobering statement from another top theologian the Catholic Church, one more. The observance by, of Sunday by the Protestants is, uh, is an homage they pay in spite of themselves, the authority of the Catholic Church. The very fact that all that Protestantism against the admonitions of the Bible worship on Sunday, the Catholics rightly say, is it is evidence of our homage to them as an authority on how God's word is to be interpreted. And yet the Bible says, and Daniel in a dream 2,600 years ago was shown by God that the Antichrist, that the little horn, that this great power that would set itself up directly against God would indeed try to change times and laws. And that's what she has done. He will speak against the most high and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. And then finally the saints will be handed over to him for a time, time and half a time. The Bible says that not only will the saints of God be oppressed by this system, but the saints of God will be handed over to this system for a time, times and half a time. Now you need a key to understand this and this is important and we're coming to the end so stay with me now as we finish this. One day in prophecy equals one year. Let me say that again. When you're studying prophecy in the Bible, this is the key. One day always equals one year. People will say, well, where do you get that from? Well, let me show you. Numbers 14 verse 34. Children of Israel have misbehaved on the Lord. They're on their way from Egypt to the promised land. They reach the promised land, they send in spies and they say the land is beautiful but it's full of giants. 
And the people say, we can't go. And God says, you must go. And the people say, we won't go. And God says, well, if you won't go, you don't have to go. But you did not believe in me. You did not trust me. And so you will be punished. And this is what he says. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land. They sent 12 spies. They explored the land for 40 days. You will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. The Bible says here, for 40 years, one day for each year, you're 40 days spying out the land. You're going to spend 40 years in the desert before I let you back into the promised land. What's that got to do with this prophecy? Nothing. But it's a key. Perhaps this is how God works. And you put the key in and you turn it and you see whether it unlocks the door. Another example of this in the Bible, and there are quite a few, Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 6. Talking now, Israel's taken, Israel is taken captive, is, is going to be taken captive for their sins. This is the captivity of Daniel from, from, from Jerusalem to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. How long? After you have finished this, God says is it to Ezekiel. Strange thing he says to him. Lie down again, this time on your right side, and bear the sin of the house of Judah. I have assigned you 40 days, a day for each year. What's that got to do with this prophecy in Daniel? Nothing. But it's evidence again that perhaps here is a key. And so we take the key out of our pockets, we insert it into the prophecy, we turn it and we see if it works. Now remember what I told you last week. A key must always be a key. So if a day equals a year in this prophecy, then a day must equal a year in every other prophecy in the Bible. Amazes me, but the truth of the matter is it does. Look at this. One day in prophecy equals one year. A time, look at this carefully. I'm, I'm banking on the fact that you're intelligent people and you can keep up with this. A time is a Jewish term for one year. A Jewish year is not 365 days like ours. It is 360 days. Daniel was a Jew. This is terminology that Daniel understood. God said to Daniel that this Antichrist, he said this little horn will rule for a time, times and half a time. He said to Daniel, this little horn, this Antichrist will oppress God's people for a time, times and half a time. Daniel knew what he meant immediately. A time is 360 days. If a day equals a year, when the Bible says he shall rule for a time, we've got 360 years. Times is plural, 720 days or 720 years. Half a time, 180 days or 180 years. God is saying that the church of Rome will rule for 1260 days. Now, if a day equals a year, he's saying the church of Rome will rule for 1260 years. Now, look at this. The last of those three tribes was destroyed by 538 AD. In 538 AD, the church of Rome was a state church across all of Europe. She reigned supreme. Now, if this prophecy is correct, then the church of Rome will reign supreme across Europe for how many years? 1,200 and 60. That will take you to 1798. Do you know what happened in 1798? <coughs> right on time. 
Berthier, Napoleon's general, marched into the city of Rome, took the Pope prisoner, dragged him back to France and the Church of Rome ceased to rule as a state church from that point onwards. A deadly wound. But just as God had shown Daniel 2,600 years ago, just as he had shown him, so it happened. Now I want to close here because we're going further into this adventure next week. And next week this prophecy comes right into our day. And if you want to know what the Antichrist is doing in our day, you better be here for this prophecy next week. But I want to just go through a short revision of what we've looked at today. The Church of Rome, number one, is the Antichrist of the Bible. Number two, the facts of Daniel 7 point to the little horn as being the Church of Rome. Look at these facts. Number one, it came up from among the ten tribes, did it? Did it? Number two, it destroyed three of those tribes, did it? Number three, it has one man at its head, the Pope, does it? Number four, it has blasphemed God in its words and its action, has it? Number five, it has persecuted the saints of God, did it? You want to believe it, somewhere between 50 and 150 million people are in their graves as a direct result of this, of this power. Number six, it has changed times and laws, did it? Has it? Does it? Yes, yes, yes. It rained for 1,260 years, time, times and half a time. Did it? You better believe it. God gave Daniel this, this, this vision almost 2,000, 2,500 years ago. And one of the reasons I follow God, as I said last week, is because the God I serve knows the past. The God who lives in my heart, he knows the present. And the God that I get down on my knees and pray to, he knows the future. As we look at these prophecies in the past, we can see the truthfulness and the accuracy and the surety of God's word. And if we can rely on what God said in the past, then using the same keys we've used, biblical keys we've used to unlock the past, we can use them to unlock the future. And the prophecies that we're about to go into impact you. They impact your freedom. They impact what is going to happen to you in the next few years. And so they are important. And if there's one thing that I leave this place this afternoon deeply convicted of, it is my need of God. Because this same power, this Antichrist that, that was alive, that persecuted God's people in the past, is alive and we'll persecute God's people in the present and in the future. And that's you. And so if you want to see where this goes, you better come here next week because I want to tell you it just gets all the more exciting. A woman rides the beast next Saturday afternoon, 4pm, right here in this church. Let's pray. Jesus, this is a serious prophecy. It can be a complex prophecy. We're not here to be entertained. We're seeking truth, God. And I pray that you'll help us as we seek truth to find it, to be convicted by it and then to follow it. Bless us as we go further into these prophecies. May they open up to us the future 
and convict us of our need of you to walk into the future. Is our prayer this afternoon, is my prayer, Jesus, in your name. Amen.